Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Public health agencies and the information they dispense have become more critically important with a pandemic and train derailments and other events. That's the topic in a moment. Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther delivered his annual State of the City address this week. In about 10 minutes, we'll focus on what he said about crime and policing in the city. Then, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Tracy Townsend takes a look back at the start of the pandemic and what we've been through over the past three years, from healthcare to education and the business world. And in about 50 minutes, I'll wrap up the program talking to someone with the American Red Cross about disaster preparedness. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Dr. Nadine Gracia, who is the president and CEO of Trust for America's Health. How are you? Doing well, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Trust for America's Health? Trust for America's Health, uh, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan public health policy research and advocacy organization that's based in Washington, D.C., and we work to advance policies uh, that will promote and support optimal health for everyone in all communities. Okay, and each year you take a look at how areas are prepared for uh, health emergencies, and you're out with your latest report. Yes, that's right. Today, Trust for America's Health is releasing our annual Ready or Not report, uh, which, as you noted, really provides an assessment uh, of the nation's level of preparedness, public health preparedness for a wide array of of public health threats, whether it's infectious disease outbreaks or natural disasters or bioterrorism. Um, And it measures states' level of readiness to respond to the report. Uh, As we know, um, it's more important than ever that we think about emergency preparedness as we've seen uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic or measles outbreaks or um, the number of increasing uh, extreme weather events. And, and what this report does is really give policymakers at all levels of government actionable data to be able to improve um, the nation's emergency preparedness. You uh, put out rankings in terms of uh, their performance as high tier, middle tier and low tier. And you have Ohio with 18 other states and D.C., in the high tier category. What does that mean? Yes, that's right. So the report um, looks specifically at, at 10 indicators um, that uh, really are closely aligned with public health preparedness. And as you noted, then we group the states into three performance tiers. Ohio is in the high performance tier. Uh, these indicators are looking at factors like um, do the states have preparations in place to be able to expand uh, their health care and public health laboratory capacity in times of emergency, uh, whether or not states are accredited um, in the areas of public health and emergency management, which uh, demonstrates um, you know, um, quality of services and, and, and a quality improvement for the states. Uh, also looks at factors such as um, level of state public health funding in the state public health budgets, uh, as well as other factors like having um, access to and utilizing paid time off, which we know is an important measure for people who are working, that if they're ill or not, not able to uh, work, that they're able to stay home and have that paid time off. And what we see for Ohio is that Ohio has many of those strengths. It um, has uh, plans in place to be able to expand its health care capacity, uh, as well as plans to um, be able to have a surge in their laboratory capacity for testing uh, during times of emergency. It has both public health and emergency management accreditation. Well, this uh, is really timely for Ohio because of that train derailment in East Palestine. Uh, the state, along with help from the federal government, set up a clinic there to so that folks who feel that they were impacted health-wise by that train derailment 
could seek help through that clinic. And, and just this week, the governor announced that that will be remaining there permanently. And that's the kind of thing exactly, I think, that you're talking about, right? That's absolutely right, Dave. And, and you're pointing to, you know, certainly such a distressing event to have happened with regards to that train uh, derailment. And so you see public health really stepping up and, and being there to help support, um, you know, addressing, um, looking at if there's any assessment of chemical exposures and if there are any potential um, health impacts related to that. And so having both local health departments as well as state health department and working in coordination uh, with the federal government, with CDC and the um, Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSDR, uh, to be able to provide those services. So public health is, is constantly responding to, preparing for a whole host of these types of emergencies, whether it's something such as the train derailment, but also even what happened in the state of Ohio, the measles outbreak as well that happened, and having children who were um, uh, getting infected with uh, measles and seeing, again, that response of public health to be able to do that contact tracing, do outreach and education, putting in place um, vaccine campaigns, and a success of that is that uh, that outbreak has now ended and that, that the uh, health department in Columbus has, has declared that the outbreak has ended. That's the strength and, and really the importance of having a strong and robust public health system. I think it's fair to say that the pandemic, though, has created uh, a lot of controversy when it comes to public health and trust uh, in public health and that seems to continue. There were even there's evidence of that even in East Palestine, where folks don't believe some of the testing that you know that the water is safe and things like that. How important of a role going forward is trust in all this? Trust is critically important, um, and an important aspect about uh, trust is is ensuring that actually it's really important to build and earn that trust even before the crisis happens, so that when the crisis happens, uh, you're 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 building on uh, longstanding relationships and partnerships that exist, and that is where public health plays such an important role and has such a vital role in communities um, to be able to work with partners of different sectors, whether that's in um, education, healthcare, transportation, housing, um, and and working with community-based organizations and social services organizations to provide the type of science-based, evidence-based information, and really keeping the public informed. Uh, you know, it's it's so important that public health um, really has the resources to be able to engage in those types of partnerships and collaborations uh, and be able to have effective communications and counter where there is misinformation. But what we've seen, Dave, is that over decades, the public health system has been chronically underfunded, uh, where um, systems, you know, whether it's from data, uh, our data systems, to even the workforce, our data systems are, are largely antiquated because of the lack of investment over years, and that we actually are facing workforce shortages in public health and really need to grow uh, the public health workforce to be able to respond to these growing uh, and emerging needs in communities. Talking with Dr. Nadine Gracia, she's the president and CEO of the Trust for America's Health well, the pandemic, you know, everybody's kind of burnt out on the pandemic. Uh, it's uh, there's the next round of possible vaccines, especially for the immunocompromised and for elderly folks is now being talked about going forward. What do you think about the skepticism that seems to be growing in the public about the pandemic and in our preparation and how we might respond if there's another one? Yeah, that's a, a really important question, and, and we are concerned. We're concerned about, you know, where there is 
feel our feelings of fatigue uh, with regards to um, these types of public health emergencies and specifically the, the COVID-19 pandemic, concerns about misinformation um, and how that decreases co- the public's confidence in, in public health guidance um, in general. And the concern about that is that can lead to more illness and even preventable deaths. And so it's really important um, that uh, that we're ensuring that the public is getting access um, to really evidence-based science-based information and, and know the credible sources of information to get that from. And importantly, you know, the public health departments are really important uh, with regards to delivering those messages and partnering to deliver those messages and recognizing that it's key, too, to partner with other community leaders and organizations who can also be trusted messengers in communities that have built those types of relationships and partnerships. And that's what we've actually seen even during the course of the pandemic, is the importance of those types of partnerships where public health is working with those types of, whether it's community organizations or health clinics in the community, even partnering with schools and universities and others that are also able to deliver messages and and meet people where they are, uh, in trusted places where they feel comfortable to get access to that information. That's going to be part of our ongoing effort because the risk is really then seeing uh, a burden of illness and, like I said, preventable deaths if uh, we don't actually follow that public health guidance. Dr. Gracia with the Trust for America's Health. Anything else you'd like to add? Yes, I would say this is really, um, an, as you noted, a critical moment um, for us to, to really further strengthen and support our public health system. As I noted, the, the chronic underfunding of the public health system, it's critical for Congress and for state and local governments to ensure that there's the funding that's necessary to strengthen our public health system. You know, we spend, uh, as a nation, about $4.3 trillion in health spending uh, annually, and yet only 3 to 5% of that goes to public health and prevention. So to having sustained investment in public health through funding and for the workforce uh, to be able to modernize our systems, the data systems, uh, as well as the policies and communications initiatives that are, are underway is really going to help us to be better prepared, even more prepared for the next public health emergency. If people want to see your new report on public health emergency preparedness, where do they find it? Yes, they can visit our website at Trust for America's Health. Uh, the website is tfah.org. That's tfa.org. Great. Dr. Nadine Gracia, President and CEO, Trust for America's Health. Thanks for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. Every two minutes, a woman in the U.S. is diagnosed with breast cancer. And in that split second, her life changes forever. The toll of breast cancer is great. 
the need to support those who are battling the disease today is even greater. We're fighting alongside patients because we know one moment can change a lifetime. United by hope, we can end breast cancer. Join our fight. Save lives. When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther delivered his annual State of the City address this week. We're going to present just about seven minutes of what he had to say, specifically his segment about crime prevention and policing. This is edited slightly for continuity and time. It runs about six minutes and 40 seconds. This is Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther from this week's State of the City address. As I've said since I was first elected, my top three priorities are neighborhoods, neighborhoods, neighborhoods. And that starts with making them safer. Although we faced our fair share of challenges on this front, I'm proud of the fact that we have a record of success. In 2017, we launched the city's first ever comprehensive neighborhood safety strategy. It brought together key partners from across the community to tackle crime from multiple angles. This strategy worked. We brought down violent crime by 30% over the following two years. But then we were hit with the pandemic. The world was turned upside down and violent crime started to rise in cities all over America. Columbus was no exception. We knew we needed to act quickly and we did. We updated our safety strategy to include new programs and tactics. And we brought it online with as much speed as possible again with a holistic focus on reducing crime through enforcement and addressing its root causes through prevention and intervention. Last year, we saw a 33% reduction in homicides, the largest single percentage drop among the 20 largest cities in the country. We've also seen a dramatic decline in other violent crime. We're solving more cases more quickly, holding more criminals accountable, and ultimately making our streets and neighborhoods safer. This is due in no small part to improved community police relations, which have led to the most crime tips we've ever received. Here's what else we've been doing. First and foremost, we're getting more officers on the streets. For the past two years, we've activated an additional class for new recruits with the capacity to graduate up to 170 officers annually. We've also, for the first time ever, opened our safety forces to officers from other cities who wish to come to Columbus and join our division of police. Another viable pipeline for welcoming new talent. At our current rate, we'll have more officers next year than ever before in our city's history. We will continue holding officers accountable for wrongdoing as well. 
I believe strongly that we can support our officers and support policing reforms at the same time. I've led the charge on this since the start of my first term in office. But the events of 2020 made clear that more extensive action was required. We implemented more reforms on a faster timetable than ever before in our city's history. Our officers are now equipped with the very latest in body-worn camera and in-car camera technology, including $19 million in upgrades we made last year that allow for higher quality audio and video, automatic activation, and video recall as far back as 24 hours prior to an incident. I led the effort to establish the Civilian Police Review Board and the Office of the Inspector General for the Division of Police both of which were approved by Columbus voters and paved the way for civilian oversight of the police for the very first time. And we're standing up the city's first ever Office of Violence Prevention, which also happens to be the first of its kind in the state. This office will coordinate our public safety and violence prevention responses citywide and further enhance our effectiveness when it comes to reducing violent crime. I'm happy to announce that Rena Shack will be leading this office. She will oversee all of the prevention and intervention programs sponsored by the city through multiple departments. We're also exploring new ways of combating the flow of illegal crime guns into our community, which account for more than 90% of homicides in Columbus. Last year, I declared gun violence a public health crisis and charged our health commissioner, Dr. Mashika Roberts, with coming up with specific recommendations, one of which was the creation of the Office of Violence Prevention. Unfortunately, the state legislature has put in place the most dangerous and reckless gun policies in the history of the state, but we're fighting back. We've passed common-sense gun safety measures, like limiting the number of rounds in a magazine, demanding safe storage for guns, and increasing penalties for shady firearms dealers. We took this fight to the courts, and we won. Now we're looking to pass universal background checks and red flag laws, too. We will not rest. We will not yield. We will not stand down. We will continue to do everything we can to reduce gun violence in our community, particularly among our black neighbors who are disproportionately the victims of gun-related crimes. Racism is a public health crisis. Gun violence is a public health crisis. It is incumbent upon us to act now. This isn't about taking guns away from law-abiding gun owners. It's about getting illegal crime guns off our streets. Last year, Columbus police collected more than 3,300 firearms, nearly 200 of which were assault-style weapons, another record-breaking accomplishment for both the division and the city of Columbus. We're also hiring additional attorneys to prosecute gun crimes more aggressively as part of an ongoing partnership between the city, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Ohio, and the ATF. The U.S. Department of Justice recently released their initial review of policing in Columbus, marking the first time ever that the DOJ has been invited by the city to assess our operations. Their findings validate that we're on the right track, but also indicate there's much more work to be done. We'll continue partnering with them as they take a closer look at certain areas, like use of force, 
and do all that we can to make sure we have the very best division of police. The safety of our community is at stake, and we'll see to it that Columbus is the safest big city in the country. That is the foundation for a stronger future. Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther from his State of the City address this week. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This morning, the COVID milestone. Three years since the start of the pandemic. Three years of deaths, sickness, and hospitals pushed to the limit. Three years of mask mandates and shutdowns becoming a political flashpoint. This morning, we are exploring what's changed and how the pandemic altered Columbus and Ohio. We'll also take a look toward the future and the possibility that history will repeat itself. It's more than likely that we're going to have another epidemic that could become a pandemic. The research underway right now and the pandemic restrictions that will remove the power from health leaders of the future now on Face the State. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning, I'm Tracy Townsend. Thank you for joining us this week for Face the State. We are marking the third anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. While the world is seemingly returning to normal, the virus and its impact are still ever-present in our lives. Many have become numb to the daily death toll and the case counts. But it wasn't always that way. As we look back on March 2020. It's the month when everything changed. March 2020 was just that, a month of unknowns. Right now, Ohio has no confirmed cases. Days before the first cases would arrive in Ohio, March 3rd, the first change as fear of a new virus spread as quickly as the cases were around the world. It's a very sad day for me today. Fans were banned from the Arnold Classic as the state quickly started to take action to prevent the coronavirus from spreading. But it was too late. Doctors have been saying this for a while now. It was only a matter of time. Kentucky, Indiana, Pennsylvania, they've all had cases and now it's here. That first case would be discovered in a matter of days. The governor issued a state of emergency. This is a three-week period of time, but quite candidly, we don't really know if three weeks is all it's going to be. Mass gatherings were prohibited. Schools were closed. Ohio and the country started to shut down. Difficult decisions, uh, but we have to get through this. We have to do everything we can to keep everybody alive. In the 35 months since March of 2020... 41,000 Ohioans became victims of COVID, the majority of people dying in the first two years of the pandemic. The latest numbers from the health department show how widespread the virus has become. 3.4 million, or a third of all Ohioans, have tested positive for COVID, though it's unknown how many more may have tested positive at home and not reported it. The virus has reshaped business, education, and this morning, a look how the pandemic reshaped health. I sat down with Columbus Public Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts to talk about how it changed health care access. COVID-19, three years later, Columbus Public Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts says she's pleased to see progress, but cautions there is room for improvement. Now we can test at home in the privacy of your home, but then you had to go to a location 
you had to have someone swab you, and then we had to send it away, which took time. Commissioner Roberts also points out that more people know about public health now than before March of 2020. At that time, she and former Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton were at the epicenter of a public health crisis, a looming pandemic, and the mass gathering of thousands for the Arnold Sports Festival. I woke up that Monday morning right before the Arnold was supposed to start, and I just had a gut feeling that this was not the right thing to do for our community. There were no vaccines at the time, no means of mass testing, and Dr. Roberts urged city and state leaders to cancel the sports festival. Continuing it as planned simply was an unacceptable risk. Do you have regrets about that? Absolutely not. It was the best thing we did for our community. I believe strongly that we um, prevented being on CNN on a regular basis, being the epicenter of a large outbreak in, in Ohio. And Dr. Roberts also cites the progress made in moving from mass drive-through testing sites to candid conversations after racism was declared a public health crisis. I tell this story pretty vocally. The first case that we confirmed here in Columbus was a minority and they told the story very explicitly that they had to beg get the test because the people and the healthcare provider were like, mm, I don't think this is COVID yet. They had all the risk factors that we knew about at that time, but they had to beg and finally they were successful in getting tested. Dr. Roberts says there is growth in cultural competence as well as gains from medical experts pushing for science and research and against fear about vaccine effectiveness and disinformation. We talk in our friend circle, have you been vaccinated? Have you been boosted? When did we ever talk about that before, you know? Um, but now we talk about it, you know? And so I think we have come to a different level. We still have a lot of work to do though. Coronavirus, novel coronavirus, COVID. What's in a name? Well, the World Health Organization weighed in and named the disease caused by the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Interestingly enough, the virus's name is actually an acronym. Co for corona, V, VI for virus, D for disease, and then 19 for the year the outbreak was first recognized, late in 2019. It took about a year into the pandemic for vaccines to truly become available for all. Many Ohioans jumped at the chance to get theirs. Some 65% of people at least started the vaccination process. But when you look at those who have had boosters, those numbers quickly diminish. About half of the people have the first booster. For that second booster, it's half of that number. Just 1.7 million people have the second booster out of the more than 6 million Ohioans vaccinated. Although it feels so much has changed for all of us in these last three years, for nurses on the front lines, the memory of those early days, well, that memory is still raw. 10TV's Lindsay Mills was allowed inside one intensive care unit that saw some of the first and worst COVID cases in Ohio. We were all just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening. Registered nurse Amy Peach was working in the medical intensive care unit at OSU Wexner Medical Center when she learned the news. It was March 9th, 2020. We were the first unit to take care of COVID patients. She says in the months that followed, there were moments that were stressful and intense. There was a couple weeks where we did have, I had like a death every shift. She had never dealt with so much death. This was where you'd have your whole section. There would be like three or four in a shift. You'd come back the next day and 
you know, no one, the different people are there. And in many cases, she was the only person with a patient as they passed away, holding an iPad for family to virtually say goodbye. But things out of her control made matters even worse. If the iPad wasn't working fast enough or quickly, you just felt like it was your fault. And at times, she personally knew her patients. When it's a good friend's like mother, it seems a little bit different. The weight of what Amy experienced was unfortunately shared by so many others. Tell me about that moment when that picture was taken. So that was a moment where it was all hands on deck. Abby Evans is a nurse administrator at two Ohio Health Hospitals. In her role, she oversees her team, but at times, COVID changed that. I had to garb up. I had to help transport a patient. I shared those feelings of the unknown, of the fear. Um, I, I just really had to, in the moment, do what I was called to do as a nurse and, and just trust that, that everything would be okay. Their stories are ones of perseverance and proving they can overcome anything. We are better nurses by what we saw and by what we cared for and it has helped advance the practice of nursing and it united nursing teams closer than they were before you're in it with so many people your coworkers, so you just don't feel like alone Still to come this morning, the changes we are all living through, how COVID impacts restaurants, mom and pop businesses, and has downtown Columbus truly healed? Plus, we'll talk about closing the learning gap in the classroom. National report card came out last fall that showed the largest decline in math and reading scores for our students in 30 years. Why one Central Ohio school is using mirrors to help students learn to read. And what about when the next pandemic hits? how medical experts are preparing, and why Ohio's ability to respond will be limited. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Times of transition, whether from a sad event or a joyful one, can leave us feeling adrift. Social connections are an important part of a healthy life. Being isolated and lonely can be harmful to your health. It can lead to high blood pressure, a greater risk of heart disease, and early onset dementia. So it's important to build and maintain connections to people, not just in your family but others whose relationships bring meaning to your life. Trying a new hobby, volunteering, exercising, even using your phone or other device to stay in touch with others. All these can be great ways to keep up your social connections and your physical and mental well-being. Visit connecttoeffect.org to see if you're at risk of social isolation and find ways to get connected. This message is brought to you by United Healthcare and AARP Foundation. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Ohio's report on schools came out this month, and it shows our literacy achievement rate with third graders is low. 
According to the report, 40% of Ohio's third graders are not proficient in reading. The report assesses the 2021-2022 school year. It shows the numbers are higher than the 2020-2021 school year, but the most recent numbers are lower than the pre-pandemic school year. One Central Ohio school district has come up with a unique way to help third graders with that. As 10TV's Amy Steigerwald found, teachers, tutors, and school administrators everywhere are getting creative to make up for that lost time. Both Sylvan Learning Centers here in Central Ohio have been packed since March of 2020. Center Director Mary Ellen Ozanich says they've seen a huge increase in parents reaching out for help, especially as students continue catching up from lost learning time. The learning gap is a real thing. The National Report Card came out last fall that showed the largest decline in math and reading scores for our students in 30 years. That decline matches what curriculum directors at Columbus City Schools are seeing with test scores hitting an all-time low and teachers now tasked with bringing them back up. Columbus City Schools has seen, seen the impact of that, and, it, and again, it was, it was significant. So we saw this real dip in our scores, and I'm uh, pleased to say that at the end of last year, we saw an uptick. Educators also feel the challenge surrounding students who, for lack of better words, disappeared during the pandemic. Measuring if students were ready for the real world was more difficult. In fact, the Ohio Department of Education stopped tracking graduating high schoolers on being, quote, prepared for success in the 2021-2022 school year. People moved a lot during the pandemic. They didn't necessarily notify their school that they did. I, I think, too, we saw among our older students in particular, they started to work. In Columbus, teachers at Trevitt Elementary have seen students, particularly in second and third grade, struggle when it comes to sounding out words. Many of them learn to read on Zoom or in the classroom with masks on. So some of the things that we noticed that were challenges were in reading, in phonics, the masks were covering their faces. And so now we put in some special features. Students use mirrors so they can see themselves pronouncing words in class and match the way their teacher does it. While educators overwhelmingly agree having students in the classroom is best, remote learning did force districts to take advantage of technology and the funding for it. We've come much further along with technology and, and students having access to technology that we've never had before. Finishing out this school year, Ohio districts are preparing for the State Department of Education to release overall grade ratings for schools once again come this fall. Amy Stuggerwald, 10TV News. Businesses are also changing their business models. The new norm for companies three years later is supply chain disruptions. Keely Croxton is a professor of logistics at The Ohio State University and says companies are more resilient with investing in extra capacity and raw materials. But there's a trade-off if you want to make sure there is no disruption. Higher prices. Consumers will have to pay more to make sure the shelves are full. She says supply chain managers are now looking past pandemic-related issues with a rise in natural disasters, cyber risks, and political uncertainty. The political tension, both with China and with Russia, still has um, a lot of supply chain managers, I think, losing sleep because there's still a lot of potential for things to go wrong. And I don't know that we'll see anything quite like the pandemic, um, but there's going to continue to be disruptions. That's, that's a certainty. 
Companies will have to continue to find other avenues to remain competitive, and Croxton believes there will be pockets of shortages from time to time. Clay Gordon, my Wake Up Seabus co-anchor, is joining us on this Sunday to talk about COVID in business and the economy. You know, we were so used to seeing all the trucks on the roads, and then all of a sudden they were stuck. And we all saw those images of the ports of those ships that were kind of stuck out at sea for a while, too. And this is why this happened. For decades, we uh, were relying on cheaper avenues, Mm -hmm. uh, these global supply chains. Um, And now we know, after covering the virus for so long, that it's uh, so uh, finicky that we we know how quickly the virus spread. Mm -hmm. And so now we know how quickly supply chains could fail. And we saw that so prominently with the lines and the sort of rationing of things like toilet paper. Yeah. And so and we are now in the, the lexicon talking about supply chain. So let's talk about toilet paper. That was the big one. Right. Um, what was the reason behind that? Well, a lot of grocery stores didn't have a lot of backstop because they never needed a lot of backstop. Um, we weren't working. So, you know, we were using more toilet paper at home. Right. So that's the, you know, the commercial versus, you mm-hmm. know, the, the consumer, too. Um, but that changed all of our lifestyles. We we were working from home. We were going to school at home. Mm-hmm. So what did we need more of? Right. Laptops, televisions, um, more things to stay at home and be mm-hmm. comfortable. Uh, even new appliances, they all have computer chips in them mm-hmm. now. Um, so what, what didn't we use? Our cars. We weren't commuting as much. Yeah. So the car industry said, take our computer chips. We don't need them. <laughs> so then, you know, the electronic industry was getting them. And mm-hmm. then everyone's like, wait a second, we need cars again. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then the car industry is like, we can't, they're going to sit here until mm-hmm. we get those chips in there too. We're hoping here in central Ohio that this new Intel plant mm-hmm. solves this globally. Yeah. Um, but that could be 2025 or mm-hmm. 2026. So, so we're kind of uh, pretty far out on, on the, that. But luckily, though, other supply chains are catching up. So we talked about, you know, COVID and the disruption, but we also need to talk about the Ukraine-Russia mm-hmm. conflict. Yeah. How did that play in? So we saw the ports clogging up for goods. Everyone was ordering online um, while we were at home, and uh, us included, oh, yeah. right? And, yeah. uh, and the ports couldn't keep up with it. They didn't have enough staff. Um, but now kind of demand kind of shifted. Mm-hmm. The, as uh, Professor Croxton said, uh, the pendulum is swinging back. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case for every country. Obviously, Ukraine and Russia, they're tied up in this invasion. Yeah. And uh, so that means grain is not coming out of Ukraine. Um, does that affect our food supply? Not as much. That's more of the breadbasket of Europe mm-hmm. um, and other parts of the world. Um, but we are feeling it with oil prices. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a ban on Russian oil. So those ships are sitting out at sea. There's no buyer for that. Mm-hmm. So we saw the gas prices rise. But with the gas prices and oil prices rising, we, you know, Natural gas costs went up. Fertilizer costs. Mm -hmm. That actually does affect our food because our farmers use that fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So it's all connected, and um, those ships really aren't moving as much as we need them to be. And I will just say the last thing is, and what Professor Croxton was telling me, was we need to expect more disruptions. Maybe not another pandemic, Mm -hmm. but natural disasters. This has got to be factored into a lot of business managers' minds now. So um, this is something that if you run a business, you have to constantly think of. And if you're the consumer, um, you're going to be paying more for them to backstock. So you have to accept either that or Except the, hey, we're out of this for a while. Mm-hmm. We're going to just have to wait until it comes back in stock. Well, hopefully these are lessons learned because there could be a next time mm-hmm. and we're better prepared for when that, if and when that happens. Let's hope. Yeah. Clay, thanks for joining Good us on the Tracy. set. We appreciate it. 
Who can forget the stay-at-home orders that forced so many businesses to shut down? And many of them had to get creative to stay afloat. TV News reporter Kevin Landers takes a look at some of the lingering effects many businesses are still feeling today, three years later. The pandemic proved costly for those in the restaurant business as customers stayed away from indoor dining and many in the food industry were forced to close. I've been in retail business in this community for over 50 years and with with COVID and what we've all had to experience over the last three years has probably been the biggest challenge of my life. Rick Crago owns Leon's in Marysville. As menus became a potential health concern, he, like other food providers, pivoted to QR codes so customers could have a touchless menu. Crago says he was able to keep his doors open in part because of the city's DORA, or Designated Outdoor Refreshment Area. Marysville was one of the first in central Ohio to start one pre-pandemic. And that just allowed them an opportunity to get out on the streets and, 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 and enjoy uptown and, and enjoy also an adult beverage and, and not be close to other people. Three years after the pandemic, he says lingering problems remain. Supply chain issues, he says, have raised food prices. And as a result, he, like other restaurant owners, have had to raise their menu prices. You know, if we're going to continue to see these slight increases come through on a weekly basis, we're going to have to take another hit and increase menu prices again. If the pandemic taught restaurants anything, it was the need to adapt quickly to changing customer demands. Many were able to stay open thanks to curbside pickup and outdoor dining. That is here to stay, and those numbers are about three times higher than they were pre-pandemic. But the industry continues to struggle to find workers. We're still on a national basis down uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. Now, you'll walk into some restaurants and they look fully staffed, and if they're, they're like that, they're kind of beating the averages, which is great. But the average restaurant is still running shorthanded, and that just isn't going to change. The viral risk has diminished, but world health experts say the next outbreak could happen soon, and they're not waiting around for it to happen. However, in Ohio, their ability to act will be limited. Health officials in this state won't be able to close businesses and schools, nor will they be able to force people who are sick or exposed to go into quarantine. Ohio is one of 30 states with laws limiting the public health authority. We saw the consequences of those laws play out recently with the recent measles virus and some leaders who were upfront about their frustrations. Even so, health researchers are looking at ways to get ahead of any other infectious diseases that spread from animals to humans. Seattle scientists say the country can be better prepared for the next pandemic, starting with strengthening labs and contact tracing. Making sure that there's the right funding and the right stockpiles of vaccines and diagnostics available. Because if you don't have that, then you're kind of running blind on what the actual situation is. The first step that we would need if we would uh, want to develop a vaccine for these types of viruses. Health experts view the world's next virus outbreak as inevitable, but learning from the COVID-19 pandemic, they say, will make the difference in saving the lives of millions of people. For the first time, Ohioans have long enjoyed college basketball and the tournament. And now, this year, fans can legally bet money on their brackets. Next, I talk with Ohio Sports Gambling about the increased gambling risks this puts on Ohioans.
Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. I'm a wife and the mother of two kids, and I've got a good job. Bye, Mom. See you, Mom. A pretty important job. Because of my family and my job, I really care about this neighborhood. It's a good neighborhood. Yes, there's some crime. And when I drive to work, like now, I realize that some people here don't trust the police. So the police should be reaching out to this community. And this community should reach out to the police. That's the way to make this a safer place. And when I get to work in the precinct house and put on my uniform, I can tell you as a police officer that this department is reaching out to the community. And the community is doing its part. We're building partnerships. This should be happening everywhere. This is how we can all be safer. Get involved. Start the conversation. Start the conversation and help stop crime. To learn the five things you can do, go to ncpc.org slash preventviolentcrime. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. I'm John O'Hurley, and I support Paralyzed Veterans of America because our heroes have sacrificed so much for our independence. I had just come home. I had noticed my legs were swept. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. PVA has brought me back to life. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. It left me paralyzed. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. For more than 75 years, Paralyzed Veterans of America has kept a promise to never leave a fallen hero behind. That's why Paralyzed Veterans of America is providing specialized medical care, life-changing treatments, benefits our heroes earned, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. Our Paralyzed Veterans have helped us live the lives we enjoy today. It's our turn to give them the best lives possible. To learn more, go to pva.org today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. March Madness returned to 10TV. Really exciting as they played out in arenas and field houses across the country and here in Columbus. Ohioans have long enjoyed college basketball and the tournament. And this year, fans can legally bet money on their brackets. Legalized sports betting is going over in a big way here in Ohio. As anticipated, calls to the gambling hotline rose with the legalization of sports betting. In January of 2023, the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio received nearly 1,500 calls into the helpline, compared to just over 500 in January of last year. I talked with Derek Longmire from the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio about the risks of sports gambling, how to gamble responsibly, and how to recognize there's a problem. The first sign is just preoccupation. Do they seem to be really caught up in gambling? Do they have unexplained financial problems? So really just being that good listener and making sure that uh, you have a good sense of what's going on. And along those lines, I saw that you have sort of a quiz to kind of monitor your your own behavior. Yeah, we have a 10 question quiz. So super easy, multiple choice, takes just a couple minutes to figure to fill out. And based on the responses of that quiz, then it will tell you kind of where your risk level is, as well as additional resources to follow. So if you're in that uh, no risk, low risk range, then they'll say, keep doing what you're doing, set those times and limits. If you're more on that high risk side, then there's some additional resources for support. And let's talk about those resources. You can find more information about problem sports gambling and how to help someone you love online at Pause 
beforeyouplay.org, or you can, in fact, call the Ohio Problem Gambling Helpline. It's a toll-free number, 1-800-589-9966. We do thank you for joining us here on Face the State today, and we wish you a great week. Take care. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. In early October, President Joe Biden warned the world is at risk of nuclear Armageddon after Russia threatened to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Nuclear weapons can cause radiation sickness, which affects internal organs and causes uncontrolled bleeding. Political commentator Glenn Beck shared a story with his 3 million followers about the U.S. stockpiling anti-radiation medication. And the Verify viewer asked us about a similar claim on Facebook. So let's verify. Is the U.S. government buying a drug to treat the effects of radiation sickness? Our sources are the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and drug maker Amgen. Amgen's end-plate medication is approved by the FDA to counteract the effects of radiation sickness. It works by helping the body make more platelets, reducing the risk of bleeding. On October 4th, HHS announced it is purchasing $290 million worth of endplate using money allocated to address national security threats. So, yes, the U.S. government is buying a drug to treat the effects of radiation sickness. HHS would not answer questions about whether Russia's war in Ukraine prompted the purchase, but said the drug is part of an ongoing effort to prepare for nuclear emergencies. Amgen says... This is its first order for endplate from the federal government. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Green, green, green. It's our home, it's our dream. For a life that's healthy and clean, make it green, green, green. My mom said making it green is making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Make sure you test your home for radon. It's easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. Make it green, green, green. A message from the US EPA. One in four Americans have a disability. I'm one of them. I'm also a working mom who cares deeply about making sure every child with a disability thrives by getting their access needs met. We've got a trusted ally by our side. Easter Seals provides children and families the foundation for lifelong success through early learning programs, skills training, and prep for college and career. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Join us at EasterSeals.com. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Jennifer Pippa, who is the Vice President of Disaster Programs for the American Red Cross. She's in Washington. How are you? I'm good, Dave. How about yourself? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, I know everybody knows what the American Red Cross is, but I'm going to let you tell people what it is. What is the American Red Cross? 
So the American Red Cross is a is a large nationally based organization that helps people in times of disaster, that supports the nation's blood supply, that connects military families when they have deployed members overseas and provides emergency communication and support, and provides life-saving first aid and CPR training to Americans across the U.S. And given the wild weather over the last, uh, boy, name the length of time going back, uh, I'm assuming that you folks have been about as busy as ever. Yeah, Dave, I, I think that's a very fair assessment. 2023 has actually been off to a really hyperactive start with increased tornado and flood risks that are forecasted for much of the country. Um, we're continuing to be on high alert and, and responding to these uh, climate-driven weather crises. I mean, in January alone and, and through the month of March, how many people now know what an atmospheric river is, right? That's a new term for a lot of folks. Unfortunately, one we're familiar with in the American Red Cross, but seeing those, those California counties and those individuals and families just being hit by layer after layer after layer of rain um, is just, a, it, it is incredibly heart-wrenching to watch. And just last night alone, the American Red Cross had over 700 people in shelters across our nation. Wow. So it is, to say it's busy, I think might be an understatement. Yeah, even here in Ohio, we've had, uh, I guess, half a dozen tornadoes or so in January and February, and that's just unheard of around here. It is. You know, the meteorologists are predicting some, you know, really big potential flooding with all of the snow that we received up in the, in the north. Uh, that's all got to melt, and that water's got to go somewhere. And then they are predicting, unfortunately, a very active tornado season. So we're just starting to get into that spring flood uh, and tornado season, which will then be quickly followed, unfortunately, by wildfires and hurricane risks. Volunteers and just people who help with the Red Cross, that's a big part of your organization. Uh, do you ramp up this time of year to get ready for that or what? You know, the, the, the unfortunate part is, is that those kinds of disasters happen all year long. So we have about 21,000 trained volunteers just in disaster cycle services that are ready to go. And that means they may respond in the middle of the night to um, a single family house fire, right, which is just as devastating to a family as someone who might have lost their home in a tornado. So we do the very small, most local disaster relief responses to the large scale ones. But we're always always looking for folks to raise their hand and volunteer and come join us and help take care of people at their worst moment. And if somebody decides that they want to help, you know, if it's, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a huge tornado in another state that people in Ohio want to go help out at, or if it's something that happens locally that they want to help, can they just do a one-time thing or do they get on a list and they get called repeatedly? How, how does that work? The beauty of our system is it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure for volunteers, right? You you may want to come and try volunteering with the Red Cross and see if it's the right fit for you. And so you could sign up, take a couple of classes, um, and then either deploy, right, to a large-scale disaster relief operation somewhere else or work in your local neighborhood and community helping folks um, and then decide if this is the right fit for you. You can continue to volunteer with us. We also have events that are scheduled, right, disasters are very unpredictable by their nature. But we have things like home fire campaigns where we install free smoke alarms in folks' homes. We have Pillowcase and Pedro, which is where we go out and educate elementary school children about how to be prepared. So there's a lot of different offerings for folks if they want to choose to volunteer with our organization. Are there opportunities for youth maybe in the summer or seniors after retirement to help out? 
absolutely. There's all kinds of opportunities there. Um, we see a lot of youth accompany their parents on some of our smoke alarm installs um, and also help with some of the work in the chapters, which would help during the day, you know, if they're not in school or over summer or spring break. Um, so when our retired folks, man, they are, they are fantastic. Um, they could deploy, which we, you know, usually ask people to give us about two weeks of their time so that we could fly them out and they can help us deliver the Red Cross mission and come back. Or they can be on something we call disaster action teams. So these are the teams that get deployed in the middle of the night to take care of a family who can't return home because of a home fire. Make sure that they have a safe place to stay for the night and that they have some financial assistance to replace some food and clothing and get them on the road to recovery. Talking with Jennifer Pippa, Vice President of Disaster Programs for the American Red Cross. Well, this is Severe Weather Awareness Week, so we've been hearing a lot about uh, how folks can prepare. What are some of the things the Red Cross recommends uh, to be prepared for disasters? There's really three easy steps that we ask folks to, to focus on. The, the first is, is to um, get a kit. Um, make a plan and then be informed. The first one is understand and create an evacuation plan. You should always have two routes out of every room in your house. Um, and you want to know how to safely evacuate your town should you need to be evacuated. The next we want to talk about building a kit. This is really simple. This is bottled water, non-perishable food, um, a flashlight with some batteries. But don't forget things like you know life-saving medication and important documents, papers, and our cell phone charges, because goodness knows nobody can survive without a cell phone anymore. And then the last is really to be informed. Understand how your local officials communicate evacuation plans. And if they ask you to evacuate, please follow their instructions and do so. And then don't return back home until after the, until after the local officials tell you it's safe to return. You know, these disasters, help can't wait. We have to make sure that we have funds ready, that we're able to deploy people at a moment's notice. Just last night alone, we had more than 700 people that took refuge in American Red Cross shelters across the country. So that, that costs money. And so one of the things we look for is today is to ask the general pop, population and public to support us financially with donations at redcross.org slash giving day. In instances beyond the general giving, if somebody wants to help out, you know, if, if a tornado hits Oklahoma City or, you know, a An earthquake hits somewhere or if there's a fire that impacts a family in Ohio, can you earmark the money to go specifically for a certain disaster? On the large scale disasters, we do. We have what we call designations. And that's that's when we'll say, you know, if in this case you wanted to give to the California operation, you could. Um, When we get down to the very hyper local, we don't actually designate those. We we try and, and, you know, let people know that it's important that every single house fire it, we're ready to go and we're able to support those families. And so we ask them to just give to our general disaster relief fund, and that's how we're able to support those. It must be uh, satisfying to know that you're with an organization that, you know, that is simply there. I mean, it, it's, it would be more of a surprise in a big disaster to not see the American Red Cross somewhere than, than to see them there. It is. You know, I I tell people a lot, you know, in this day and age when when folks can be somewhat divisive and and it can be really easy to get kind of down on yourself. The most powerful thing you could do is is join the American Red Cross, raise your hand and show up with other volunteers and just see people giving of themselves. Right. Giving of their time, being compassionate and thoughtful and caring for folks or experiencing something horrible on maybe their worst day, um, there, is, there is nothing more um, inspiring than seeing that humanitarian spirit in action. 
Talking with Jennifer Pippa. She's the vice president of disaster programs for the American Red Cross. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I appreciate it. And just go to redcross.org. You can support us financially. You can roll up your sleeve and donate blood, or you can volunteer with us. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.